Welcome to Disarming Leviathan. My name is Caleb. This podcast is designed to equip you to engage American Christian nationalists as a mission field. Today, I talk with author and scholar Caitlin Chess. Writing has appeared in Christianity Today, New York Times, Relevant, Sojourner. Uh, she has a THM in systematic theology from Dallas Theological Seminary and is currently a doctoral student in political theology at Duke Divinity School. She's also written uh, a couple of books uh, that we talk about on this episode, The Liturgy of Politics, and a new book, The Ballot and the Bible, both of which I highly recommend. In this episode, Caitlin gives us a brief history of how the Bible has been used throughout America's history, and some of the ways uh, that the scripture has been misrepresented to buoy political aims of certain leaders. She also gives us some coaching on how we can engage people in our lives who might be misunderstanding or misapplying certain parts of the Bible. So without further ado, here is my interview with Caitlin Schultz. So Caitlin, you've done a ton of work on the Bible and its use in American history. Tell us how the Bible has been used maybe from the founders on and why are we so like infatuated with it? Yeah. So part of Part of the story is that, you know, the era of America's founding is also an era actually of a real resurgence of interest in the Bible shaping political life, which is kind of counter to how a lot of us have told the story. We might have thought, you know, early Roman, you know, early church era, sure, we care about the Bible for our political life, medieval era, especially kind of mixing of political and religious power. Oh, definitely. But then the Enlightenment, right, we're like unshackling ourselves from religion. And actually in that period around the world, especially Western countries were really interested in, especially the Old Testament, shaping their political lives. And so America is unique in that like, it's the era of our founding that there is this resurgence. So when we go back and tell stories about the founding of our country and what that means for our continued identity and community, we go back to an era that's much later than the era of most other kind of Western nations that we might compare ourselves to. And also, unlike many of those other nations, we never had a state church. So we don't have that kind of relationship between the church and political life, which has its own complications and difficulties. But because we didn't have that and because, you know, immediately in our history, there's dispute about denominational differences, tradition differences, sometimes really violent disputes about this kind of stuff. The Bible takes on really significant importance because not only is it majority Protestant country, and so we really care about scripture, but also that's what we've got to work out our disputes. It's not like we just can kind of have a top-down approach of, okay, this is the state church, the church determines the interpretation, that's it. And especially the first, you know, the, the two great awakenings really change people's relationship to scripture. So early in our country's history, there is this somewhat suspicion of religious authority and hierarchy. And that often drives people back to, it's me and my Bible, and I'm interpreting it, and I want to know how it shapes my life. And that includes my political life. And wrapped up, especially in the kind of colonial era in America, like I said, there's this interest in the Old Testament. There's a lot of interest in the way nations are talked about, especially the nation of Israel is talked about in the Old Testament. And so our early history is rife with examples of kind of using biblical language, especially language about Israel, and applying it to originally not America. You know, early colonists wouldn't have anticipated kind of the way things go historically, but at least their community, like their small community, like many others around the world, seeing itself in at least in similarity to Israel. There was like a real interest in the concept that all nations were in some sense covenanted with God. And they would go to the Old Testament and see, okay, here are the things that you are 
you know, rewarded for and here's the things that you're judged for. And that shaped a lot of early American life. There was actually, interestingly, I think there's a, a gap kind of. That's that's an interest in the beginning of our history. It doesn't really stick around. I mean, biblical language gets used, but this kind of emphasis on like, we have a special covenant with God kind of fades out in our history. And then it's not until the middle of the 20th century, especially the Cold War era, when we're trying to retrieve this history of we have, you know, we, we are a Christian nation, we have this like particular story of our founding, that all of a sudden this language comes back with a lot more force. And we start telling the story as if it was just continuous when it really kind of wasn't. Although, as I said, biblical language in all kinds of ways, like in, in ways that are outside of this like covenant or kind of applying promises to Israel way, have often been used. And I think it's not just these kind of historical reasons, like why America was founded when it was, or, you know, the, the particulars of our religious tradition. I think it's also, and this is true of a lot of other nations, but because you combine those things with this other thing in America, people are hungry for a sense of transcendence and and greater meaning. And so even today, when we're looking at declining church attendance, or at least disaffiliation, I think it's interesting that on both sides of the political spectrum, there is still a lot of quoting of the Bible. And it's not always because those politicians Sometimes it's because they're Christians. A lot of times it's because this is language that makes people feel like their political lives are rooted in something deeper than just the demands of the moment, the the shifting trends. You know, it's we are doing something that is morally significant, eternally significant. If you take it really far, this is like what God has said. And so we have to be faithful to it. And I think there's lots of problems with that. But I do think it's important to say there's a good desire here to to see our communal life rooted in something bigger than just what we think. So it gives people who, are, who have decided to bind themselves together into a state, uh, like the United States of America, yeah. uh, some reason for being together, uh, something deep. So when yeah. we feel like we might want to disintegrate, uh, we appeal to scripture, we appeal to something to transcend it. That means that we can continue to bind ourselves together and that our cause is just yeah. And that we're, that God is for us, who can be against us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as you're watching, maybe you mentioned the Cold War, as you're watching from the 80s to today, political leaders who are using scripture and Bible teachers who are speaking on politics, right? how has the Bible, how is it being used in our communities? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of biased, but I do think so much of what's happening today is is rooted in in dynamics that came to life during the Cold War. Um, both because, as you know, I mean, this is like an era in which a lot of our kind of national identity as a Christian nation gets um, emphasized for political purposes. If we're against the Soviet Union and communism, and that's atheistic, then we are the Christian capitalist nation. That's when you know, under God is added. This is when you know these are the the kind of communal language that shapes the idea that we are a Christian nation is often added to our money, to the, to the Pledge of Allegiance in this period to kind of shore up that sense of national identity as connected to Christianity. And I think it's really important, you know, I was not alive <laughs> during that, you know, period of history. Um, I think especially a lot of younger Christians who were not alive during that period, it's hard for us to imagine what it was like to be alive in a period of, of new fear I mean, I, I've had to really grapple with my research because I'll read stuff that just sounds totally crazy to me. And then I'll remember not only are nuclear weapons still a new thing that we've discovered, we can actually really like destroy entire countries. That's horrifying and terrifying. And then you're in this period where not only do you intellectually know like the two superpowers really could just destroy the whole world. 
But for children, for young people, like if you're doing a drill in school where you hide under a desk because maybe the Soviet Union is going to is going to nuclear bomb America, it's it's such an atmosphere of fear, and it makes sense that you would reach to scripture to to explain it, especially scripture that is full of really cataclysmic events, descriptions of fiery judgment. Like it makes sense that you would both see resonances there and that you would think there's got to be some comfort here. I want to find myself in this story. And if I know how the story ends, I can be comforted because I know that that we end up on top, that I'm safe, that I'm secure. And so, so much of our, of our sense of national identity as, as wrapped up with Christianity, but also I think just our sense that that we want to look to scripture both and to see ourselves, to see America in the text. That's again, revived. We've had that in the past, but it becomes more important then. But also a sense of, I want to know that we have a secure position. And and it makes sense that people would want that, not only for their nation, but especially in this era, this is not just a time when we're like, Bible teachers are teaching this. This is a time when a lot of fiction about the rapture is proliferating. And it makes sense that people would be really attracted to stories that give them a sense of purpose and and heroism. Like, even if I am not raptured, even if I'm left behind, like in the Left Behind books, I, I can go to scripture to tell me what will happen. I'm not without resources. I actually, I can know more than my neighbors know. And I can play this heroic role. And that's comforting and exciting. And a lot of that, I think you can see in our political life today, not only this sense of America's significance as a Christian nation and America's special relationship to God, which is all throughout those both theological works and fiction works in the the Cold War era, but also this sense that a lot of what's animating it is anxiety about the future and what role do we play and what role does our country play? And those are entirely legitimate, you know, concerns and questions to have. And the idea that you could just find in scripture a clear blueprint that tells you the answers to it is really appealing. So we are looking back into the 80s in our magic time machine, and we're noticing that so many people are anxious, and they're anxious about mutually assured destruction, they're anxious about nuclear war, but mixed within that is they're anxious about displeasing God, that if we're not on God's side, we will be destroyed. And so... Uh, like Second Chronicles seven fourteen, if mm-hmm. my people who are called by my name, uh, you know, will turn from their sin and repent from their ways, I'll heal their land. This, this starts getting appealed to as Americans yeah. are watching, uh, American evangelicals are watching certain things in the culture shift that they yeah. disapprove of, and they'll scream and yell about repentance. It seems like because they view if we as a nation get too far outside of God's will, uh, we're going to be destroyed. Is that part of the conversation as well? Yeah, no, that's so important, Caleb. I I also think, so it's interesting. It's again, so many of these things, like the impulse at the root of it is a good impulse, both when it comes to scripture and to our communal life. So the idea that nations are judged for communal sins is an idea in the Bible, like it 100% is. The difficulty, and I love that you brought up that verse in 2 Chronicles, The difficulty is when we hear something like heal their land, we have certain ideas about what healing the land means. Um, So not only are we obviously kind of appropriating a promise given to Israel, but again, I think at the heart of that, the idea that in the Old Testament is is truth for us is a good good approach to scripture. And the idea that, that God, again, the idea that God judges nations, true idea. 
But heal their land doesn't necessarily mean that the land that we exist in will be healed in all of the ways that we wish that it would be. (laughs) It doesn't look like economic prosperity or military might or financial security or physical security. Um, That's well described in both the Old and New Testaments, that sometimes even when you are acting faithfully, you suffer and you fail. And that happens both kind of individually and sometimes communally. And so I think part of the difficulty is not just that we are kind of afraid of God's judgment. It's that we're, we import a lot of our own ideas, both about what needs to be repented of. We're not often very careful readers of scripture to see what various things the nations are called to repentance for. And we often misunderstand what God's favor would look like. Um, We import our own ideas about what God's favor would look like. And to go back to that first one, we have all sorts of ideas and, and scripture gives us lots of examples of sins that nations are judged for. But I do think it's really important to say when it comes to the Old Testament, it's overwhelmingly clear the nations are not judged for not keeping the law that's given to Israel. The nations are judged for how they treat other human beings. And and a lot of biblical scholars will say this is rooted in the covenant with Noah rather than the covenant with Moses that is the specific law, right? If Israel doesn't keep these laws, they are judged in these ways. If they do, they are blessed in these ways. That's specific to Israel. The covenant with Noah is for all creation. I mean, it's very specific. It's like animals, humans, the land, like everything is included in this covenant. And the covenant is rooted in the idea that you shouldn't harm other humans because it, it says explicitly in Genesis 9, because they are made in the image of God. So I think what we often miss is we just treat the whole of the Old Testament, especially if we're thinking about how nations are judged, we treat the whole of the Old Testament as anything I see here that Israel or other nations is judged for, I should assume will be applied you know, exactly in the same way to my nation. Rather than going, okay, we're not Israel. We should still learn from the law that's given to Israel. There's all sorts of ways that we can do that. But we shouldn't miss the fact that nations that are not God's chosen people, which includes our own nation today, are described in the Old Testament. And it's very specific, the things that they are judged for and the things that they're not judged for. And so there are things in there that we, I think, should be concerned about when it comes to especially how we treat the the widow, the orphan, the foreigner. That's, that's like the emphasis in the Old Testament that nations are judged in those ways for enslaving people, for um, economically mistreating them, for harming um, Israel. For you know, So there are descriptions we can find of ways in which nations generally are judged but they're not necessarily the things that we might get most viscerally upset about in our particular political context. And having the ability to check ourselves and really return to what it is actually say in scripture about how nations are judged is, is a difficult thing to do. Yeah, I, it's been quite some time since I've heard anyone uh, raise concerns around economic justice in yeah. my community. And that's all over scripture. Yeah. So we notice that scripture can be used to give us a sense of national transcendence. Uh, it gives us a, a sense of safety that we know how it's all going to turn out yeah. in the end. Sometimes it can be distorted to making us think we're on God's team and the enemy, our political enemy is the Antichrist. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was just remembering so many pictures from the 80s of like Boris Yeltsin kind of mm-hmm. painting the Antichrist. And, yeah. You know, it's easy to make my political enemy God's enemy yep. and use the Bible to do that. And sometimes we use the scripture to justify our cause. Um, yep. I, I, in my memory, I remember scripture being used uh, during uh, the Iraq and Afghanistan, the wars in Iraq yeah. and Afghanistan. And it was, we were, I mean, even the language of the axis of evil. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's Bible talk. <laughs> and yep. it was used yep. to justify this this war. Um, so maybe help us understand, you know, if, if there's these pitfalls and dangers in using scripture, 
But I hear you saying we ought to use scripture as we think about power, allegiance, national identity. So if we want to steer clear of the distortions, what's maybe the, the better path that we can follow? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I always say about this is probably initially going to sound annoying and I apologize. But the first thing I always want to say is we need to read the Bible more. Um, Too often, the way we get into these distortions is a political problem presents itself and we go, what verses do I know that address this? Um, And that's honestly, that's the more faithful response. The worst one would be, let me find verses that support what I already think. But even if we're trying to really earnestly, you know, search the scriptures, we might go to a concordance. We might look up a particular word, see all the verses. And not only do I think, does the demand of the moment shape the word we look up in the concordance, the verses we think are applicable, the the way that we interpret those verses. But I think we're just not in the emotional space to really hear the word of the Lord that might really be against our interests or against our political party or against our policy that we want to support. That's not the space that we're in when we're right in the heat of the moment. And so one thing I always say is just, I just want us reading scripture more um, in community, in our churches, in our families, in our communities, um, reading widely, reading across the canon. Um, I know a lot of churches that just like don't even touch the Old Testament, for example. I was just with a group of Christians recently, and we were talking about biblical guidelines for public engagement, like public speech, work in the public square. And I had a suspicion beforehand that almost everything they said would be either references in the New Testament or Proverbs, because what we're looking for is direct word. Here is the command, or here is the thing you're not to do. And it's a single verse, and it's not in the context of the paragraph or the whole epistle or the story. And there was almost nothing from the Old Testament. So we have to read widely. If we're only reading in the New Testament, we're missing so much in the Old. We have to read narrative as well as epistles, as well as the Gospels. Like it can't just be in the form of explicit commands. We have to learn the moral logic that's illuminating the stories in Scripture, um, asking what is actually being honored here and what is being really you know, judged in this particular story. And it might not be what I initially assume it is. Um, so reading more widely, reading in community, and also I think reading people in you know other times and places around the world in our own history, um, throughout the larger history of the Christian tradition, because it's really uncomfortable. And this is one of the examples I give in the book. It's really uncomfortable when you have a favorite verse that you love using in certain political contexts, and then you discover that it was used by different Christians in a different time and place in ways that you find actually sound very similar to the way you've been using it, but you hate the results of it. Like the political results are terrible. The example I give in the book is, I wanted to have a conversation about Romans 13 because Romans 13 gets used all the time in our political life. And I said at the beginning of the chapter, it's been used against, or it's been used in support of separating children from their parents at the border. It's been used against Black Lives Matter protests. But then on the other end, it's also been used against churches that wouldn't follow masking regulations or meeting restrictions. So we all love like, like grabbing Romans 13 when our person is in power and we like the policy. And the example that I went to was loyalist priests during the Revolutionary War who loved Romans 13 against the the patriot neighbors they had. And I I loved doing that research and I wanted to present it in an accessible way because I wanted people to read it and kind of really grapple with, well, if I assume this is the way to use this verse, but I hate the way it's used here, I want to shoot up fireworks and eat hot dogs on the 4th of July. Like I'm not a pro-Romans 13 in the Revolutionary War person. It, it forces us to grapple not only with, okay, what am I doing hermeneutically and how can I adjust that? But also on a more kind of emotional, spiritual formation level, ask, why do I gravitate towards this verse in certain circumstances? What 
what work do I think it's doing to quote this? Who am I using it against? And why do I think it's appropriate to use it against them? And, and I think it will, it both kind of provokes us because it, it bothers us that this is used this way. And then I think it gives us a tangible example to wrestle with of like, okay, let's imagine I'm in this particular context that I'm not in. It's not so heated. No one's like, getting up and leaving the Thanksgiving dinner table over the Patriots versus the Loyalists. But could we inhabit this example for a moment that we feel connected to as Americans and really wonder, like if I was in this circumstance and Romans 13 was her, I heard that in a sermon against the Revolutionary War, how would I have felt? What would I have done? Like, does it give me some space to think about this in a political context, in a context that's a little less heated than the political demands of this moment? I love that. And also even we, we, we're so blessed because we have access to global theologians. Yes. We're yep. applying text in radically different political settings. And so not only learning, being varied and, and diverse and listening historically to those who've come before us, but also those yeah. who are right now. Uh, I was with a pastor from who's in Turkey. Mm. And we were talking about, you know, the, the Turkish government's highly suspicious of the church. And the way that they talk about the state hmm. is the exact opposite of how yeah, I do yeah. here in a place where, you know, the state is trying to leverage the, the church right? Yeah, and context and nuance and the guiding of the spirit. Uh, and so reading, I'm hearing you say reading a lot of the Bible, reading the Bible with a lot of people. Yeah. And sometimes that's people within our church families, but also ex- we have access to global leaders and historical yeah. leaders who've thought about it as well. So I love yeah. that. So there's an election coming up, <laughs> as there always is in these here in yeah. the United States. Uh, every two years, my Pepto-Bismol bill goes up as the <laughs> acid reflux uh, hits in my congregation. Maybe just give us some coaching on when we're sitting with family members, inevitably something around politics is going to come up and and if they're christian yeah. bible's going to get thrown in there you know we're at we're at the 4th of July barbecue we're at the kids 12 year old birthday mm-hmm. party we're at thanksgiving dinner and we hear something and we hear bible being invoked um, to justify wh- whether it's you know love your neighbor as yourself so that means we have to get more guns or right, right. Um, you know what whatever it might be yeah. um, when we hear Bible in those conversations, would you just give us some coaching on how to respond in a way that would be helpful, compassionate, gracious, but also pointed? Yeah. I mean, one of the first things I would say, and and it might feel uncomfortable initially to do this, but I actually think it could be really beautiful um, is when it, when a scripture is referenced in some political conversation, just saying, Hey, can we go and read that? Like, can I pull my Bible out? And maybe you start a full chapter before that, or at least a few verses before that. You figure out where the best kind of place to start the wider context is. And I think that's helpful not only because we need to read these kind of cherry-picked verses in their context, but I even think just the the act of going like, okay, we're pausing for a moment. I'm not going to just jump in with my contradictory verse. We're going to breathe. I'm going to read this thing. Like, I literally have to, like, slow down my breath and my speech to read this thing out loud to you. I just think that lowers the temperature a little bit. Another thing I would say is, and it's related to this first one, is just, and this is true, even if scripture isn't involved, but but truly being in prayer before context in which you know those conversations are going to come up because you're going to need both the help to have the like wherewithal to go, okay, let's let's read this together or to come up with, 
you know, maybe you're not pitting a cherry picked verse against it, but maybe you go, hey, there's this other story that maybe I want us to think about. Let's just like talk about it together. Like to have the mental presence to do those things will really require some forethought ahead of time. I think the other thing that's helpful is, I mean, this is true all the time, but asking questions of the person who is referencing the scripture and some good questions I have found is both a general question about just like, why is this so meaningful to you, this verse or this issue? Um, Talk to me about what's significant to you about it. Another one I have found that's like sort of disarming to people a little bit, and I think can be really useful is what sounds like good news to you in this verse? Where Where is the gospel, the hope? Like what about this feels appealing to you because it offers some hope? And you can be really surprised by what people will say, either because you'll start to have a really in-depth conversation about what's in the verse. That's a great outcome. Or you unravel this and it's not even really about the verse. It's like, I want this to be true because of this hurt that I'm experiencing, this failure I'm seeing, this this great grief I'm going through. And then at least you've moved it into that space. Like you have found what's really going on kind of underneath the surface. Um, so asking some questions about that. And then also I think, again, sort of resisting the urge to just like throw more Bible verses in response, but also I think not being afraid of going, okay, you've given this verse in support of this thing after we've kind of thought about the larger context of it. Here's a counterexample. I want to do the same thing with that. I'm not going to just cherry pick it at you. I'm going to talk about the larger context. We're going to read it together. And instead of sort of saying, okay, like let's bat those two against each other, asking, you know, what do these two say to each other? How can we think about them well together? Um, Because I think the impulse is just, they're like tally points. (laughs) Like I found one verse in support. You found one verse in support. If I can get five and you're against your four, then I win. Instead of, well, these are all true. These are all true. And even even doing that in a way I think can build a lot of good relational support to say, we both care about living under the authority of scripture. Can we just talk about like, that's amazing. I love that we both want our political lives to be shaped by scripture. Even just interrupting the fight to just be like, can I say, I so appreciate that you want your political life to be shaped by scripture. I want that too. And I love that we can have a conversation about it together because we both want that. Again, it might be that like, that verse was not offered in charity or love by the other person, but your sincerity in that can be incredibly disarming. Um, I was just in a conversation with some people where someone was asking a, a kind of pointed question, like they were really disagreeing with the other person, but they asked in the form of a question. And before the other person answered the question, they literally paused and with like such sincerity, like I believe that they believed this to their core. Thank you so much for caring so deeply about this. And it not only was like such a beautiful moment of grace on behalf of this other person, but it completely like disarmed the person they were fighting with. It lowered the temperature. Like it literally brought tears to my eyes as someone only partially involved in the conversation. And I think the more that we can be in the practice of both utilizing those kinds of questions and statements to kind of lower the temperature, but really believing them. Like that's actually the harder thing is going, I actually do want to find in this person and in this conversation, the part of this that is a good desire and honor it. Not only because I think that's a good practice, but also because I am, I'm aware that in myself, I hope I have really good motivations for what I'm doing. I have a good earnest desire, but like this person, that gets mixed up with all this other stuff, with my own sinfulness, with my own preferences and biases and prejudices. And so if I want that to be honored in them, I I want it honored in me as well. So being like Jesus to them, yeah, (laughs) even when they're not like Jesus back to me. Yeah, he's like the king of of disarming questions. So (laughs) So just just reading the text in context, making sure that we're, before we even enter into those 
situations, praying, yeah. Lord, guide me, give me strength, increase my compassion for this person or these people. Asking a lot of questions, so leading with curiosity. You, I love your question about what sounds like good news to you in this text. Uh, it's so good. And then reading the Bible in context. And that sounds, Caitlin, like maybe something that's not going to happen in five minutes. Right. <laughs> so it may be keeping the relationship in such a state that we can have another meeting in the future or go yes. out to coffee next week. Yes. Or, and, and even statements that I found helpful, like, you've given me a lot to think about. Can we meet up yes. in a couple weeks? Especially when the temperature does get a little high. Yeah. Uh, instead of shutting it down and ending the relationship, it's, you've given me a lot to think about. Could you give me some time instead of saying, yeah. you need time to cool off? You know? Right, right. So taking on the pain of that, taking on the weight of it, um, just like Jesus showed yeah. us how to do. So I love that. But, you know, you know again, the, the election's coming up. Many of us are still licking our wounds from 2016 or 2020. And I know that for many of us, we're, we're just wondering if there's any hope. As you've engaged yeah. in this work, where are you finding hope? Yeah, that is such a good, a good question. I mean, I, I'm hopeful that people are doing the work. Like, I, what, uh, I was talking to a therapist recently who said that her like most important thing that she says to people who are going through really difficult relational dynamics, their own trauma, et cetera, is this feels hard because it is hard. And that's been helpful to me to realize like this is hard. Like it just is hard. Um, but I, I'm encouraged by the fact that people are, are doing it. People are doing the really hard work. They're working really hard both to kind of maintain relationship with people to earnestly search scripture and see what God demands of us in this moment, in this particular political context. I'm encouraged by that. Um, something else that like has really shaped my thinking about this as I wrote this book, um, I talk in the end of the book about the idea that we need to be able to hear the word of the Lord against us. And I get that from um, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pastor during the Nazi regime in, in Germany. And I went, when I was writing the book, I wanted to talk about this idea. And so I went back and found the speech where he says this. Um, it's like early in the rise of the Nazi party, and he's speaking mostly to youth. And he says, you know, we're not really interested in hearing the, in actually hearing scripture. We only want it to be for us. We don't want it to be against us. And I was really surprised at something else that he said earlier in the speech. And I put it at the end of the book, even though it's not really about the Bible, but I just think people who read this book, people who are in these conversations might really just be feeling like the church is broken things are not going to get any better. My particular church, at least, right, is just like divided. This is impossible. And at the end of this, or the beginning of the speech, he says that he ran into a man who said to him, the church is dead, which is funny to think like way back then, people were already being like, the church is dead, you know? So Bonhoeffer's response to this is to say that on one hand, you have the kind of faithless world that responds to this claim, the world is dead, uh, the church is dead, and says, great, let's throw a party. That's amazing. We love the church being dead. Then you have the pious faithless, so the people who don't actually have faith in, in Christ to make all things new, but who go to church and put on a good show, and, and they'll respond to the church is dead with, let's let's work harder. Let's gather a bunch of resources. Let's build a new building. Let's get some programming together. We will rise again. You know, it'll be okay. And he says, actually, the, the truly faithful person says, of course, the church is dying. The church lives in the midst of dying because God is always bringing his people from death into life. God is always doing the impossible against what we are doing. <laughs> like it is not through our best efforts. It's because God uses what is what is bringing us into death and turns it into life. 
And I found that so encouraging. And I wanted to end the book that way, partially to just encourage people who are feeling like the church is dying and there's nothing I can do, which is my response is like, yeah, you can't. (laughs) Like, we cannot fix this. This is not within our power. But also to say, I'm just, I, I like inhabiting the brain space of someone hearing that in a moment in which they had every reason to say, oh, of course the church is dying. I'm watching the church literally capitulate to the Nazi regime. There is no way that the church as a whole can overcome this. I mean, this is just like the, the deepest moral evil. And to be reminded that even if in our context, in our particular place and time, it just feels impossible that there are both examples of faithfulness, like Bonhoeffer, who can say the church lives in the midst of dying and God does the impossible and and resurrects us. But also there are examples of faithfulness outside of ourselves, around the world and other places and times. What I cared so deeply about writing this book was for people who feel like the white evangelical church in America has nothing good in it. I don't think that's true. I think there are some examples of faithfulness. I think there are some things we should, you know, retain and and cherish. But even I can understand the feeling of like, there's nothing good here. What I wanted to say in the book was one of the most, I think, beautiful examples of faithful political witness that was shaped by the story of scripture is the black church in America. So if you feel like you need to just discard the tradition you came up with, I would I would caution you against that. But if you feel that way, I understand there is faithfulness in like in your country, in your very recent history, ongoing today, that you can look to and see, I see resurrection happening. I see what Bonhoeffer said is true in the case of, of these really faithful Christians. That's so good. And we find that, don't we, too, in, we've alluded to this, but in the book of Revelation. Yeah. It, it seems like the beast or the dragon is winning. Mm-hmm. It, there's this radical subversion in the lamb being the one who finds yeah. victory, yeah, but not through power over, but by power under the means of the cross, right? It's, it's yeah. what we practice every time we take Lord's table. And at the center of our faith is a man dying for his enemies. And the conquering that Jesus yeah. does, the, the, the power of the kingdom of God is cross power. And many of the people that we love um, maybe have gotten themselves ensnared or entangled into being seduced by the power of the sword. Yeah. And what's tricky is uh, a lot of these swords have Bible verses on them to yeah. justify their use. Yeah. And the, the hope comes not from throwing the Bible away, but from diving yes. deeper into scripture, finding Jesus more powerfully yeah. vivid in the text. And I think that that, for any of us listening when we're having a conversation with a loved one, a coworker, someone at our church, Bible study, who's exhibiting uh, outrage, uh, toxic anxiety, to answer that not by throwing away their Bible verse, but by inviting them to a deeper engagement with it. Because we'll find Jesus there oftentimes. Uh, So Caitlin, thank you so much. Uh, Where can people find you and your work? Yeah, I'm um, sadly I'm on social media, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Caitlin Chess. Um, you can also go to CaitlinChess.com, especially over the next year. Um, I not only have like links to my books on there, but I also have some um, downloads for prayers for an election season and spiritual practices for an election season, um, which again is just like it's it's all coming down to like, are we the kind of people who can do this well? Not that we have all the answers, but like we have prepared well to withstand what will be really difficult conversations and moments. And do you also have a voter guide to tell us who we should vote for? I absolutely do not, no. (laughs) Just wanted to check. Uh, That might be. (laughs) Cool, well thank you, Caitlin Chess, thanks so much for being with us today.